Welcome to Blink of an Eye, life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident, rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Season 2, Episode 16, Radical Forgiveness. Hello, everyone. I hope you are doing well. Gosh, I'm just pausing for a moment because I hear so much from you about how you're listening to Blink of an Eye with others. And yes, you can talk about it and reflect on it and realize you have a real sense of your own life and you can track how far you've come. And those pauses, they're good for me too. Sometimes we need each other to support these pauses, don't we? Our bodies also need that time to digest. It's part of metabolizing the trauma of our lives. Your life, my life, each of our lives. So precious and very worth drawing insights about and sharing them. It's part of returning to feeling whole again. I think that is what trauma calls us to do, really. As much of an upheaval as it is, and emotionally horrible as it is, a traumatic event is an invitation to go deeper in our lives. But today, we're going to explore the experience of forgiveness. That's right, forgiveness. Spontaneous, freely given forgiveness. I think it's an aspect of trauma healing. And I'll explain and further explore this with you in the trauma healing learnings that accompany this story in Trauma Healing Learning 16, Radical Forgiveness. We are all in this together, this trauma healing journey. And I hope you feel that and know you are not alone. And I cannot wait to see a number of you tomorrow night, October 14th, at our celebratory Zoom event as we gather to celebrate reaching 25,000 downloads and to share some behind-the-scenes scoop and blink-of-an-eye salon conversation. It's so remarkable that our listenership grows by 100 new listens a day. With our listenership growing, we are now beginning the process of looking for sponsors and organizations to partner with Blink of an Eye and I See That, the Integrative Center for Trauma Healing, Advocacy, and Transformation. We'd love to hear if your company or organization is interested in sponsoring episodes or placing ads. You can email me at louise at blinkofaneyepodcast.com for more information. Thank you for reaching out. Welcome back to the story. Settle in. Settle your spirit. And anticipate something of value for you. Perhaps a reminder of something you already know. Or maybe forgot. Or something you resonate with. Or might consider in a new way. Here we go. Back to August 2015 the Trauma Intensive Care Unit in New Jersey, Room 3111, Archer's Hospital Room. Episode 16, Radical Forgiveness. Life can change in the blink of an eye. 
I closed my eyes and took in the sounds in our healing sanctuary. The new nature soothing of the gentle babbling brook and the soft twitters of songbirds in the glade. Before these long surgeries, Arthur had asked for more nature music. I had been alternating the Frim Fram sauce and Frank Sinatra with music from nature to mix it up and mark the difference in morning, noon, and night for his body, as there was little way for Arthur to know when the lights were kept on now. 24-7. With his request was a shift, as there was a period of time this past week when he didn't want any sounds at all. And when I played the soft sounds of seagulls and the sounds of the waves in the ocean, he objected. Of course. I had found another soothing track but it too had water, gurgling waterfalls. But he didn't like that either. But he continued to want nature. I found three or four other choices and with his butterfly wings, he chose the sounds of the woods. And then he chose the sounds of the woods with a soft noted that shift, and I wrote in my journal, nature sounds, wood, softest water trickle background. I was fascinated at his request, and I was marveling at his courage to listen to any water sounds. I was also marveling that for the first time in a couple days, we had a moment to look right at each other. It was as if we knew that was all we really had. Each other and that moment. He smiled at me with his beautiful gray eyes. As his eyelids slowly closed, I thanked God he was still alive. And I began to write. Family and Friends Update, August 29, 2015, Saturday, Day 25. Two days post-lung surgery, and it seems we are in a no-man's land, caught between this trauma ICU being out of options for Archer to further his progress and being too fragile for transport. Lord, help us. As Archer rested, really rested, aided by pain medication and our healing sanctuary, I was able to take in that we might have to stay longer. Thursday night, he reported excruciating pain in the entire part of his body where he has recognizable his shoulders and top of his back and neck. It was difficult to watch his pain coming out of the anesthesia as he was so desperate for water as his tongue flickered back and forth for any moisture. I think he also had a little flashback as he came out judging from what he was asking me. But it was a few hours later, as the general anesthesia wore off, that his mouth writhed. Crushed! I'm being crushed! Crushed! I knew it would almost be cruel to calm him in our usual ritual where I get very close, face to face, eyeball to eyeball with him, and we breathe together totally focused on the breath, the same way Billy would do with me through all of my baby deliveries. 
but this time it was as if his very lungs themselves were crushing him. And it seemed cruel to do our usual. But he pleaded, his voiceless, frenetic mouthing, Flush my lines! Flush my lines! It was scary. All I knew was, don't fight against. I whispered steadily, don't fight the pain, Arch. Don't fight it. Move toward it. You can do it. Use your mind to focus on it. Move toward it. But I raced for help. I realize now that this was happening at almost the exact time of the prayer vigil in Baltimore, where hundreds from all faiths gathered for Archer Strong. If you doubted the reason for your gathering or your prayers, you do not need to doubt. It was your prayers and intentions and love that supported Archer through that excruciating pain Thursday night before the proper combination of pain medicine could be administered. When I talked with the surgeon afterward about the crushing sensation Archer experienced, he said, it is probably the pleurisy in his lungs super sensitive tissue, now inflamed tissue because of the plastic lung tubes jammed into them, which the tissue wants to reject, added to the tissue's reaction to the talcum powder sprayed in his lung after it was water flooded to ignite scar tissue forming to create the adhesion of the lung to the chest wall. Hmm. It was helpful to understand this so I could explain to Archer that it would feel this way for about 48 hours post-surgery and we will control his pain actively. All that is to say that I promised Arch I would authorize pain meds for that 48-hour period. We have been fairly successful with reducing a regular need for narcotics and forms of morphine by instead relying on soothing music, lavender, rosemary, peppermint, nose breath work, and a very quiet sanctuary very low voices and minimum amounts of other medications instead. As a result, his body all in all has been working well, as it should. And I remind him of that. His body is working well. Your body, Archer Sempt, is working well. Our room is good for other reasons, too. A few staff have asked to enter through our closed glass doors with a curtain drawn, and they enter and whisper, Ah, this is so nice in here, which is good, because if it is nice for them as well as for Archer, they will feel healed, too which I know they need because I can't imagine the toll the environment extracts from the medical staff, especially the nurses. There are ones that are rough. They don't have to be. It's understandable that they are in that environment. But I knew from what I had observed regardless of what we have tried to create for him, that those two large tubes in his chest and lung are excruciatingly painful. And I also believe 
that even though his body is paralyzed now, he will have cellular memory of this pain that will be important to work through. So the drugs had Archer in and out for Thursday night and most of yesterday. Indeed, it looked as though he was resting peacefully, and we let you know that. But things changed again, and we took a step backward. He spiked a 104.8 fever yesterday afternoon. It happened on a whim, really, that we realized it. It was late in the afternoon, around four o'clock, when Archer opened his eyes for a period of time. He looked paler and thinner to me. He requested a cold washcloth in his Archer way, where he glances up to his forehead until I register that he needs the ice cold cloth. <laughs> Good. Looks like we've got our old archer back. But, hmm, he hasn't asked for an ice-cold cloth in four days. I went out to get the crushed ice for the little plastic tub that we used to dip and ice down the washcloths. Always doubled is archer's preference. Probably because the ice-cold lasts longer. Leave it up to Archer to figure out a system of best ways to make things work. <laughs> and to instruct us. As I lay the wet, cold cloths on his forehead, he mouthed, Or pain medication. I went out to seek a nurse. Seeing none of the nurses in the bay as they all must have been with I asked a nurse practitioner if Archer could have some pain medication, as it was all on demand as needed for PRN. She looked in her handheld device, pulled up Archer's chart, and said, His two-hour pain medication had been given one hour ago, and his four-hour pain medication had been given two hours ago. I consulted my notebook, thank goodness for it, and said, that doesn't sound right. I think he is due for both. When Archer asks, it's almost always time, as he asks to have a clock in front of him and to see his monitors at all times, which I made sure of. He's smart now. And I think it gives him some empowerment in his situation. She checked again. And so it was. Good. I went back in to tell Archer they were on their way. When she arrived to dispense them, and I asked to see them as I always do now, I also asked her, Would you mind, just for the heck of it, checking Archer's temperature? And she said, no problem. She inserted the metal thermometer probe and watched her handheld electric monitor. She remained standing there watching it. And after a period of time, well, well beyond the normal, I asked her, what's going on? And she said, staring at the handheld monitor. He's at 104.8 and climbing. I'll order an ice blanket. Oh my God, 104 flashed before me as that was the number I recall with babies and toddlers as the danger zone for brain damage. And when Archer spiked high before and we iced him, I had asked a nurse then what was considered high. 104 is considered high enough, she said. He was almost 105 and climbing. I raced for the ice packs of Phil, as I know the drill now. 
the nurse practitioner said it was not necessary because the ice blanket would take care of it. But I rushed with the empty ice packs to the crushed ice machine anyway to begin filling under the cup ice dispenser, which is clumsy and messy, but worked to get the job done. But a crazy thing happened. The nurse who was involved with the medical error was there at the adjoining sink. I said, Hello, Archer is spiking a high fever. As the ice tumbled out and I had to shake the bag from time to time to get it filled, I looked at him, his head down as he used the sink. He wouldn't look at me. I said, I have looked for you since that night, but I have not seen you except for one time in passing, but you went into a room. Yes, I know. And I said, I have wanted to talk with you. I stopped filling the pack and looked right at him. And I said, please, please look at me. He did not. His head was still hung down. I said, I want to see you. And I wanted to tell you that as terrible as it was for us, I know it must have been terrible for you as well. He slowly turned towards me and glanced quickly at me and then back at his feet. And I said, and we didn't want you to be punished. We just wanted to understand and not have it swept under the rug and not have it happen again. And he said, I take full responsibility. It should never have happened. And I said, it's understandable how it did though with all the lines and such. And he said, no, I can handle more lines than that. I take full responsibility and it will never happen again. And I said, it will never happen again. And he said, it won't. And I said, Sure. Please, please look at me. You are a caregiver and you are a good caregiver. He raised his head and looked right at me as the ice I was not watching was spraying everywhere. And then he said, May I help you? And I said, yes, absolutely. And he grabbed a large styrofoam cup and tore off the end and held it to the mouth of the ice pack bag under the dispenser like a funnel. And together we filled the remaining two bags in an instant. I was so grateful. And I said, teamwork, thank you. And I raced back to the room. I know now that ordering anything in the hospital takes time. It's understandable. But we don't have to be satisfied with waiting when some self-help can work too. When I returned to Archer's room and two of our favorite nurses had arrived on the scene, together we ice-packed Archer under his arms and in his groin and one of the nurses got additional packs and put them on his wrists and ankles. I felt relief. I was so grateful for our working together. 
and I know Arthur felt the responsiveness too. It may not have been the best, but it was a good start. And by the time the ice blanket arrived, his temperature had begun to drop. He was at 104.7. Not much, but at least something no longer climbing. Better than nothing. The ice blanket machine arrived 30 minutes later. We removed the makeshift ice packs and they wrapped Archer's thighs and abdomen in large, thick, contoured sheets of heavy, squishy fabric, like heavy rubber armor with sticky stuff on one side. I could see that Archer's thighs are very thin. They told me the pieces were very heavy because each piece of water armor is full of little cells of water, which are hooked to a hose that is hooked to a machine that sends coolant to cells. I watched in the dusk and then into the darkness for the fever to drop. It was slow going, very regulated, 104.3, etc. When the machine got to 99, I went to go get a nurse. She checked the machine, not yet. About an hour later, Archer said he was very cold. Archer's temperature read on the machine was at 97 degrees. I went to get a nurse again. The machine had gone a little too far, she said. They must not have set the right gauge. She kindly turned it off. I said, Archer is pale. Archer was also uneasy. She said his core temperature would normalize, and she left. He said he was very cold. I went and asked if we could put a sheet over him or something. Sure, we did. He said he was still cold, and I could tell in his face and eyes he was growing more uneasy. I called her again. His temperature was at 96.7. She asked Archer if he would like the ice armor removed from his body, and he nodded. A couple nurses came to unwrap him and put a sheet back on him. After they left, he mouthed, Mom, listen to that sound. What is it? He listened in the dark to all the many whooshes and gurgles of his ventilator and his trach and the tubes and the other many clicks and monitor sounds and hums in the room, punctuated by the bells and alarms outside his room that are unceasing in other patients' rooms. But I wasn't sure of any different noise. He had the ability to describe it as I watched his mouth. Ah, that was the new sound of the ice blanket machine. That was it. Archer has no ability to see much as the stiff neck collar when he's lying in his bed forces him to look in one way with very little peripheral vision, like having blinders on. And I said, Arch, you're right. 
You are so amazing. It is a new sound. It's the ice machine they used for the ice blanket. But he was agitated and he said, off, off. Archer was uneasy and thought it was still on. I looked at the monitor on the ice machine. It was still on because the temperature probe in Archer showed 96. He was still dropping. I took a picture with my phone of the unhooked tubes from his body and I showed him. And then I said, it must still be cooling the hoses because it's in standby mode. But the hoses are not attached to you anymore. He seemed satisfied. I went to ask if they could warm him up. What an awful feeling to be at the mercy of people taking care of you and getting mixed environmental messages that create doubt when you are helpless. They came and wrapped him in a warm blanket to heat him back up. The ice machine did too good of a job. To ease Archer, I reminded him of how well his body was working. Truly, the machine iced him and his body responded and the warm blankets now were wrapped around him and his temperature slowly was on the rise. He was just so pale. And when he closed his eyes, it was corpse-like, like you see in a funeral parlor. It was freaky. And I asked the nurses why he was so pale. They said he was just cold. We were well into the night. We settled into rest a while. They started him on a broad-spectrum antibiotic, unfortunately. Unfortunately. <laughs> I'm learning over and over and over that every single decision has another side to it in trauma care. I pray there is no bug that comes along. Archer's room is also ice cold. I really think less than 46 degrees last night. So I have to call upon our camping tricks and I wrapped up and put a blanket around my head to capture some of my own body heat. I keep asking why they don't put a beanie on Archer like we used to do when all the babies are born and their little bodies are learning to regulate outside the womb. They say they've never done that in trauma. I know some of my ideas are probably not well informed, but it just seems possibly helpful. Who knows? Maybe not. While Archer was battling to regulate last night, I read texts in the dark. I'm so touched by stories and verses you send me. Thank you. I really love you all so deeply. In the pre-dawn, they told me Archer needed two pints of blood because his hemoglobin was 6.8. I asked what the scale was so I could understand that. And she said, yours and mine is about 13. We get concerned in trauma if it's below seven. I asked how much blood he lost in lung surgery, 200 milliliters. I asked, how many milliliters are in a pint? 250. So where did he lose the other blood? She assumed from the draining chest tube. I think that must be why he looked so pale and thin. I'm learning. 
There was more I wrote this day, which I'll share in a moment. But first, I wanted to share an excerpt of my interview with Dr. Raymond Tolucci, Chief of Trauma at Atlanticare, as we looked back over five years later on this tough and delicate time. Part of the professionalism of medicine and the maturity, which you get, yes, you're supposed to be critical and you're supposed to be, you know, why are you doing this and what's this all about? And you're supposed to be taking notes and asking questions. We ask you to do that every day. We walk in the room, we spend what, five minutes in the morning and we're supposed to go through all this complex information. And by the time you've had a chance to collect your thoughts together, we're gone. And so we tell you to write questions down. And then all of a sudden you start writing questions down and everybody thinks you're going to sue them. But that's not what you're doing. No, no. You're writing questions down. Yeah, in fact, that's what we want every family to know. Like, write questions down. You've got to understand what's going on. It, you know, it leads to better decisions and, and leads to more compassionate outcomes. Yes, I, I think it does in the long run. I have to tell you something about... Um, about the, you know, we obviously did have more than one uh, medical, what would you guys call them? You know, deviations from the standard of care, medical errors. But the and but the worst one was the six-minute um, heart attack when when really Archer was gone and they were beating on him and I'm I, I'm telling you, death was in the room. I remember you know screaming like you know, death be gone uh, from that room. But when I learned about that nurse and that he had been sent home, I knew I needed to find him. And it was many days and then he avoided me and I thought I would see him like down a hall. And I know that the nurses are not, you know, on your quote unquote, you know, your team, your rotation, because again, another way things are siloed. But I, I do, I remember so uh, I, I needed for myself to have that nurse know that he was needed desperately in a field that was so hard and to not be shaken and that he was completely forgiven hmm. for, for what he did wrong. Because you know that, you know, the, the mark of shame can keep you, hold you back your whole life, your whole life in it from a from a what could have been otherwise a, a beautiful wonderful career helping people and i i just think that's a piece of a piece of understanding i mean we're not going to let the medical professional off the hook when there are errors but i don't think we go about them in the right way right now i don't think we do mistakes do get made some cause harm. Some cause no harm. Some cause a great deal of harm. We are also human, and none of us is perfect. I wrestle with this tension. Maybe you do too. But I've thought a lot and also spoke with Bernadette Morrow, Director of Spinal Cord Information and Resources at the Dana and Christopher Reed Foundation about it as well. Here's an excerpt of that interview as she reflected back to this time in 2015 when we connected back then for the first time. Yes, you had told me a few things that had happened with staff and the number of codes that were going on and the nursing errors that occurred. Yes. And it was clear they, you know, a, a, a spinal cord injury that's a drowning is, is precarious. And um, if you don't understand autonomic dysreflexia, if you're not cautious, you can over give the patient blood pressure medication and then you crash them and you bottom them out 
um, because you don't just you don't recognize that this autonomic dysreflexia. And then when you bring when you crash them, then you cause their lungs to collapse again, and then you have to revive them and give them too much medication. And I've seen it over and over and over over the years because physicians and hospital staff don't have the appropriate materials. Um, and they may not understand spinal cord injury that they overtreat patients and they end up doing not intentional harm, but harm um, through lack of knowledge. Spinal cord injury is complicated. We need to advocate for educated medical staff so they can understand autonomic dysreflexia. But I remember back then feeling very cold. Maybe you have felt this way too in a hospital. I felt like I revered the capability of the hospital staff. I also felt I was at their mercy that they had knowledge I did not. And I felt there were many mistakes being made, from small, careless ones to major harmful ones. It was the whole mixed bag. But it hadn't crossed my mind that they didn't have the knowledge we needed. I was trying to take as many notes as I could and to ask questions so I could learn and understand. I just wanted to do the best I could for Archer. Isn't that what we all are supposed to do as mothers? Would you have done the same thing? No one can take the place of a parent advocate. I wonder how many medical staff understand that and welcome that. No, I think the good ones do. A parent and a medical staff working together can make an incredible team. And we had some good ones for Archer. But nonetheless, there were many others for whom it was uncomfortable when questions were asked. It was noticeable. Even Dr. Tolucci spoke of the fear of staff being sued. That makes me sad. I also know it's very real in the litigious world we live in. And I get it. It's a hard environment. But why does there have to be so much resistance to patient family members wanting information? Why is it that many doctors and nurses feel challenged when simple and not so simple Questions are posed. Well, the more they shut down, the more I lunged forward. I wanted them to help Archer. And I wanted to help them help Archer. And I wasn't going to be intimidated into not taking notes and asking. I hope you wouldn't be either. After all, who else can be a better advocate for your child than you? And we better stay educated and on top of things. But the truth of it all for us was that as part of my look back, I realized that they knew some things and I knew some things. And together, we could have made a team a good team at most every turn. But there was a growing fracture between us and among Archer's medical team that they didn't know what they needed to know. And that's the only way I know how to explain it. We knew things were not going well and that some errors or omissions had happened. But none of us knew exactly what they were. That was the biggest barrier 
that we didn't know what we didn't know. I could see what was carelessness, but I couldn't see what was not enough expertise because I didn't know either. I didn't know how often this happens to other spinal cord injured families, or if it does, maybe it was just Archer. Why did all these things keep going wrong with Archer? But I felt myself getting more and more doubtful about the staff, and that's not good. I also had flashes of anger, and I could hear my thoughts. You're the experts. You're supposed to know what you're doing. And I felt the heat throughout my body as I pointed my finger at them and my thoughts. It did not make me feel any better. If anything, it made me feel worse. Have you ever had that experience? When you're blaming, but it really makes you feel worse. I mean, yes, I knew in my being that something in Archer's medical care had gone wrong related to why his lungs collapsed and kept collapsing. Too much peak pressure, not enough. Too much blood pressure meds, not enough. And why a C5 injured person could not get off a ventilator. And I confess in my surges of anger that it had crossed my mind to sue them for incompetence. But I was learning too fast how complicated spinal cord injury is. I didn't want to get distracted by the anger and finger pointing. Oh, it could feel good for a moment, maybe. But it was a false sense of righteousness. I knew it. But it was still there. We had plenty of other barriers to deal with. I wanted Archer to recover and walk again. But it was enough to calm me when I recognized that what he needed might not be in this hospital, but might be elsewhere. It had been a long time there, almost a month. Please, Lord, help us make the right decisions. As I closed my eyes again while Archer slept, I asked, I pleaded for guidance. I could smell the rose that always reminded me of the Virgin Mother Mary. I love her so much. Please, Mary, help me. Hail Mary, full of grace, please. Wrap your arms around me. I don't know how much time went by, but I do know that when I opened my eyes, it was dark, but I was clear. <laughs> no bad juju. <laughs> that's right. That's what I was thinking. I didn't want any bad juju around Archer, none, no bad energy. I didn't want any. That meant I could not be an impediment to anyone or anything that was good for Archer. I couldn't be the source of anything that was causing anyone else to suffer in any way. No ill thoughts. No vengeance. I was very clear about this. Archer was in a deep sleep. I called Billy and we talked a long time. 
I shared the feeling I had about no bad juju. I told him I was going to have to take a look at my life, and it might be hard and might not always make sense, honestly. It felt very vulnerable, even with my husband, to share this most intimate belief that I had to make sure I was not in the way in any way for the healing energy of the prayers to find Archer and lift him. Billy listened. And I also said, and there might be some radical forgiveness we need to take a look at between us to remove any old bad energy too. And I want to do that. And advocating for Archer might have to be very strong. But it will be okay, Billy. So long as it's never oppressive or vengeful. He was quiet. I could tell he was thinking. Then he said, not so much in a resigned kind of way, but actually in a quite supportive and even resolute way. Okay, Wheezy, I am with you. Thank you, Lord. It wasn't surprising to me, really, as Billy is a kind man. But it felt like I had my partner back. I thought again about that nurse at the ice machine. I thought about how he hung his head and wouldn't look at me. I didn't want his future ruined. I didn't. I knew from my early litigation days many years prior of defending doctors against malpractice claims how an entire career of a decent, good person can be tanked when one mistake, one lawsuit, and one super conscience would not stop flogging the other victim. I had seen brilliant, competent physicians have their self-confidence shredded. And I saw that in the way that young man hung his head. Bad outcomes. They can shake you to the core. And some people are never the same. You might know exactly what I'm talking about if it's happened to you or to someone you know. I hope to this day that male nurse knew that is not what we ever wanted for him. We are all just doing the best we can. And spinal cord injury is complicated. Well, no bad juju was my new goal. And that meant radical forgiveness of the nurse of the hospital. And it didn't mean the hospital got a pass, but it did mean I would advocate without bitterness or an edge. I would advocate from a place of strength and compassion. I wasn't sure how to do that completely and all the time, but I wanted to live into that. And letting my anger go towards that nurse really opened me wide up. It also seemed to strangely open a new pathway because I felt clearer and stronger and more resolute. We need good medical people who are confident and knowledgeable Archer Sempt, you will not die in this hospital or be left in this hospital if they've run out of options. We will find others. And this hospital, 
They have served us as best they can. And we are grateful. And we need to move now. You will live and heal and live again a new life. Family and Friends Update August 29th, Saturday Billy returned in the early morning from Baltimore where he went to help Dewey get settled into his new dorm in college. And he happened to be there for the amazing prayer vigil, totally spontaneous, and such a blessing he could be there for us. We know so little about the world outside our hospital room and the 50-minute drive that connects us to alternating sleep in Cape May. It was so good to see him. It felt like forever that we had been apart. Since I had had two days away midweek checking out rehab facilities, both inpatient and outpatient, and a day mediating. I had wondered if I could mediate well. Well, it was an elixir, actually. I so love my mediation work and my clients, even difficult clients, because I know it's just their pain that makes situations hard. And most didn't even know about Archer. Or if they did, they didn't say anything. But two divorce clients did and kindly said they were sorry to hear. Oh, I felt my insides get a little quivery at their kindness. I smiled and said, I appreciate that, but I wanted to stay focused on them. But I ventured to put it out there that if they were open to saying a prayer for us, to please do so. After all, whether Christian or Jewish or even non-believer or once believer, there's one God that connects all of us. And we all need him, really. He's always there for us in our sorrow and our joy. Even if we turned away from him for a while, he always welcomes us back because he is forgiving. I believe that so much because I have felt it over and over again at those times when I dissolve or I stumble or I'm not the person I know I can be. It's God's grace that helps me pick up the pieces again. <laughs> and he loves me right through it. Billy and I are trying our best not to stumble too badly as we are faced with such big decisions related to Archer's care, like our house, where we live, our company, my practice, and our nonprofit we were just launching. I am face to face again with so much unknown. It's like Archer said a few days ago when he was stronger. One day at a time. One foot in front of the other. Oh, that reminds me to tell you of something else last night. Amidst all the fevers and chills, Archer summoned me in a quiet period with his clicking sounds he makes with his mouth, like you do to giddy up a horse. He learned that from his Uncle Will. But I assure you, this old mama horse gets moving when I hear that giddy up click. <laughs> oh my 
gosh, he is so clever that he figured this out as it's the only sound he can make. Well, he clicked for me around 4 a.m. with a mouthed request to take his arms out from under the blankets. The hospital had him mummified in the last few hours. Okay, I took them out. I noticed how his once large, thick, strong hands that are very unique to Archer and our family are now very thin and wan. It actually startled me because they are also so pale as his face. He was very serious. He had his eyes closed, but he mouthed that he wanted his arms stretched. Okay. I stretched them for him, but I was really afraid I might hurt him. I asked if it was okay, and he butterflied, nodded. I waited still with his eyes closed, he mouthed to me, watch my left foot. I moved to the end of the bed and did so. In the semi-darkness of the room, lit by the numerous glowing electric monitors, I watched. opened his eyes. I told him to try again. He closed his eyes and did. Still nothing. He opened his eyes. He nodded acknowledgement about nothing. I lifted his left foot and massaged his toes. always smiles when I massage and kiss his toes. Well, this time, he also smiled, but it was so weak, and he closed his eyes again. And I said, it's all in God's time, Arch, you know that. We have all the time that will take, right? He nodded. I let him be. I checked the monitor readings and crawled back under my four blankets and wrapped my head in another. Time. God's time. I marveled how in his clear physical weakness he still had the heart to try in the middle of the night to send messages to his foot. Those tries are not in vain. Isn't it amazing that he is trying like this? Archer the lion. Then I felt my hot tears again. I know he will walk again. I just know it. It might not be until he walks into heaven, but he will walk. And as for our time on this earth, we believe in miracles. We just don't know what they will look like or when they will happen. But it can happen. God's time. Please pray for Archer's strength that he can be transported soon 
so we might start the intensive rehab that is necessary and that awaits him. Please pray that our family makes the right decision as to where that is and that we stay strong. Please pray for Archer Strong. Please pray to the Blessed Mother Mary. I honestly believe Archer is being held and fighting with love and determination to overcome these incredible physical barriers because of the energy field of your collective praying with gratitude. Amen. I did believe that. And I still do, even though things are often not exactly what you pray for. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Life is so precious. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. Thank you tuning in to the Blink of an Eye story. You may continue listening this Saturday to the trauma healing learnings that accompany this story at Trauma Healing Learning 16, Radical Forgiveness. Thank you for listening and telling your friends. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye, We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Listen on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Baltimore Mediation has offered trainings and workshops on conflict transformation, mediation, relational leadership, and the Enneagram since 1993. For more information on our course offerings, visit www.baltimoremediation.com.